A good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? Join the authors of Design to Change and explore this series of conversations with designers and event owners. Driven by the need and conversations with event owners and event designers who use the event canvas around the world, this series explores the depths of conversations to elevate your abilities to look and act beyond the now. Episodes are hosted by Rude Janssen, Rule Friesen, Dennis Lehrer, and Paul Rilkins, with illustrious changemakers, designers, and pioneers in the field of design and beyond. To explore these conversations and additional content, visit designtochange.online. For now, let's start the conversation. Conversations. All right, welcome uh, Dave Gray to the Design to Change podcast from um, Missouri. Is that correct? Yes, thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So, um, Dave, you call yourself a possibilitarian. Um, enlighten us. What does that What does that mean? I do. Um, well, I've, I've been and done a lot of things, and uh, uh, one common thread in that is always trying to find in any situation what's possible, what's the best possible next thing. And um, so now in, uh, I guess, semi-retirement, um, that seems to be the best label. Excellent. Now, many people might, uh, might know or might not know, you, you're also a prolific author of quite a number of books. Um, many people have used probably some of your tools, maybe without even knowing it consciously. Um, you have um, 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 been a very active contributor to you know, visual thinking, and that's how I first came across your work with some of the work that we've been doing with our colleague Dennis uh, Lyer, um, using your empathy map, which I think is one of the prolific tools that I think a lot of people know. and. Uh, your organization that you started um, uh, called Explain is something that maybe uh, some of our listeners uh, might be familiar with. Um, how how do you how do you use um, let's say possibilities and visuals? What 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 was your trigger to kind of go down that alley? Well, I guess um, so. I went to art school, so I've always been a kind of person who is interested in visualizing. Um, uh, information, anything. And, um, I think one of the things I realized relatively early on is that, um, in order to do anything, especially anything complex, you have to imagine it in your mind before you go about doing it. And so, um, for me, uh, visualization or visual thinking is a great way to explore possibilities. Um, it's also very low risk, and uh, if uh, and it's also a good litmus test because if it can't be drawn, it can't be done. Uh, if you are unable to connect the dots and visualize uh, a potential future, then um, you don't know how you 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 can't really put put it together or make it happen. So, just in the same way that we make a uh, a sketch and then a blueprint when we're designing a building or um, uh, anything else you can do that with your life and your work as well. I like that. It's, 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 um, it's powerful. If you can't see it, you can't make it happen. And, and, uh, uh, to go down that maybe conversation, um, the first opening kind of line in, um, in the book designed to change is, um, a good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. 
uh, would you, Dave Gray, leave it to chance? Are you asking me? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, um, uh, I suppose every conversation has a chance to change the future forever. Um, and, uh, but sometimes, yeah, just conversations just happen. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, um, part of it falls on you to determine what are the important conversations and, um, and then actually being intentional about those. Mm -hmm. uh, I think listening is a, as important important as speaking in a conversation and sometimes even visualizing can help now um so no if it's important i wouldn't leave it to chance yeah. <laughs> and and um uh, having conversations without let's say uh pen in hand or without that visual in, in front of it because our our auditors in this podcast are obviously getting just the audio signal mm -hmm. um can you paint pictures or visuals without actually seeing them, do you think? Of course. Yeah. Mm, that's what authors do when they write a book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, let's let let's see if we can take our, our, our listeners onto a little journey with you. Um, because I'm, I'm trying to picture, let's say the horizons of change, right? So um, as I'm looking out my window here, I can see, you know, a hill across um, the valley here in Switzerland. And it's quite a tall hill that's maybe you know 150 meters 200 meters away and that's my current horizon of change if i'm looking at it now if you were looking at your horizon of change what 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 do you see what's what's currently on your horizon of change well um i guess when i look out the window what i'm seeing is that um because of covid uh, there's a shift in the way that many of us are doing our work um, it tends to be more remote. It tends to be more, not remote um, psychologically, but physically remote. It tends to be more um, uh, virtual. Um, it, it can tend to be more asynchronous. Um, and I, what I see uh, as a possibilitarian is a lot of opportunity that um, there are things that are great about being in person in the same room together. Um, but there are also things that are great about virtual and online um, conversations and collaboration. For example, um, you don't have to get on airplanes, uh, you don't have to travel, you don't have the expense of travel and uh, lodging and so forth. The, uh, the friction to getting people together is much lower. And so that opens the door to a, a lot of different ways of thinking about how we work together and um, the, uh, I guess, a silver lining of the COVID, um, uh, I guess, extended crisis, if you want to call it that, is that um, we can now start from an assumption that many or if not most people will be working virtually or will at least will be open to working virtually and um that in some ways creates a level playing field for us to have more uh conversations with more people um to not have be forced to condense them into being in the same room at the same time um and i i think there's a lot it opens a lot of doors as well as uh, closing some uh, another way of looking at my horizon is just looking at my calendar. 
and I can see, um, you know, some people can look out over the next month and know exactly what they're going to be doing every hour of every day. I don't like to live that way. Um, I try and keep a lot of open space on my uh, calendar so I can um, take advantage of opportunities that I see and things that arise and uh, also to make time for uh, uh, deeper work, you know, um, writing, reading, thinking about things. So, um, uh, you know, I look out on my calendar and I can see, I can see things that I'm doing, you know, through, uh, through April and beyond, but, um, the farther out I go, of course, the less detail. Um, awesome. So the, so taking the time to think, um, is one of those things that are important when you're thinking about possibilities, right? But also in your, in your book that I really enjoyed, uh, Liminal Thinking, you talk about that whole concept of, you know, you, you cannot change things in the past. You mm -hmm. can't really change things in the future, but you can only change them in the, in the here and now. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Which, yeah. which also kind of implies that if you don't do it now, it might never happen. True. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and I would say if, you're, if your calendar is packed up, um pretty tight over the next uh over your kind of time horizon then um whatever capacity you have for change is already baked into that and so um you're going to be more limited than someone who hasn't you know scheduled the you know every minute yeah so that begs the question also because um in the event design handbook, I remember we spoke about um, in one of the chapters, we explored um, the empathy mapping concept that I think is a very uh, powerful in its simplicity tool to look at things from different viewpoints, different perspectives, from different stakeholder perspectives. Um, now, our definition of an event is quite simple. It is anything that changes behavior. Uh, by two or more stakeholders, right? And events, when we say the word, usually ends up being something complex for a lot of people in their head. But events are also, and uh, I just got back from an event, you know, one of the first events that I've been to after, you know, this, this uh, COVID period. It is now the 17th of March, just for, uh, on, in 2022, um, that Dave and I are speaking. And in that event, um, we spoke about uh, the future of incentives. Right. And incentives are a very peculiar type of event uh, because incentives take place after the behavior has changed. Right? So it's almost like a reward event to sustain a certain type of behavior over time. Um, if you're looking at, let's say, the open space in your calendar and how do you determine what you pay attention to and what you, what you decide to plan or what you leave open? Right? Because... Um, Obviously, you know, you, you were mentioning you're in semi-retirement, so you, you have that kind of opportunity to also maybe, you know, um, have less, less obligations or things you choose to do. What is the role of events for you? Just to kind of maybe dig into that. Are events important to you or do you, how do you look at them? Yeah, I think of, um, I think of events as opportunities to, um, move the needle to move the 
you know, things to the next step um, to um, open opportunities to explore them and to close things in order to move to the next um, part of the journey. I'm not sure if I answered your question there or not. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the one of the one of the books that that's always on my shelf here. You know, game storming, <laughs> building blocks. That's the word. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know the building blocks that you have, for instance, in this game storming book. I, I think are very inspirational for people to think about um, ways in which they could spend the time on a very specific task with a very specific outcome. Almost as small building blocks that you could string together or stack together in a, sp- a certain specific way, intentionally or unintentionally, depending on who would stack the blocks mm-hmm. um, and then how they would facilitate those blocks, right? Because they're there is that kind of serendipity of an unorchestrated conversation or, um, you know, two groups of people or two people getting together without any form of structure and seeing where that leads versus a very structured kind of approach to an agenda or to a series of outcomes that are strung together in a very intentional way. But you never and know both, if they're going to work. Both can be important. Both can be important. Yeah. Yeah. They can all... Sometimes it's important to have unstructured conversations. Um, if you notice, uh, if you watch journalists, you'll notice some of them are very good at not speaking. So um, that's one of the tricks I learned when I, and I was a journalist for a period of time, is when someone um, says something, sometimes just wait. The long pause uh, can and you can be very surprised by what comes after that. <laughs> yeah. The Brits call it, I think, the pregnant pause, right? Which, pregnant which, pause, yeah. yeah. Which takes almost... Um, and funnily enough, in my experience, and it may be a question to you, do you feel like uh, the technology we're using to connect, like today we're using Zoom to connect and record audio, um, some people have observed that this kind of technology makes people much less comfortable with pauses in conversations or spending time not talking between two or multiple people to actually take time to think. Do you think technology forces us to like fill all the gaps or do you feel like you, 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 we can be comfortable using the same gaps that we have in live conversations? A good question. I uh, I do think that um, everyone is different. Some people need time to think. Some people um, are comfortable, you know, speaking off the top of their head. Um, one thing that I have found very useful is to get um, some of these online tools. Um, specifically, one that I use a lot is called Mural, and uh, in Mural. Uh, what I will often do and when I'm working with the team is specifically carve out a block of time, five minutes, two minutes, uh, three minutes um, to let people think. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with Mural, it's a tool that allows you to do the kinds of things that you would do on a whiteboard with sticky notes um, in a virtual, on a virtual board. And uh we get interesting things when uh, I do that with people. You know, we um, 
um, you have a question that's on the table, uh, uh, some, you know, whether it's in, um, you know, strategic planning and we're looking at what are the opportunities for growth or um, whether we're um, looking at the culture and thinking about that or what have you. Um, carving out a block of time, giving people five minutes to think and put their ideas down and then giving them some time as a group to read through or go through and process those and group them and um, put them in, in order does help uh, have people have a richer, more fruitful conversation. Um, so I think it, it does depend a little bit on the tool that you choose and how you choose to put um, tools together. I think, you know, the more, of course, the more people you have on a Zoom call or a video call, um, the more people are, you know, waiting for a chance to speak or wanting to uh, chime in and so forth. Um, another thing that that does, getting people onto a shared board together is gives everyone a chance to share thoughts, whereas in the, uh, in a, just a talking heads meeting, you might find that a few voices tend to dominate the conversation and other people don't either don't have the confidence or the assertiveness or um, desire to fight for attention. So they, um, they might hold back on things that could be extremely valuable. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, you know, video and visual is made for, you know, one to one or one to many or many to many or many to one and audio doesn't have that capacity. Right. So yeah, audio can be one to many or it can be one to one, but it cannot be many to many, at least not in the technological sense in which. We're unless you want to, unless you're going to have an, an opera. <laughs> <laughs> but that is an orchestrated. Yeah. Situation. Right, which requires yeah. peak music, rehearsals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, voice orchestrations and uh, and all of that. Do you feel like, um, and that might be a good uh, kind of bridge. I mean, what was your impetus to write a book like Game Storming? <clears throat> Why was that book written? Well, let me follow up on what you were just saying um, as a way into that, because... Um, what you just pointed out is that time is a resource and there is a scarcity of time in any event or any meeting. So, um, you know, you have, uh, let's say you have an hour for a group of people to come together and make a decision. Well, um, only so many, um, only so many minutes of that hour are going to be allotted to each person having a voice. Um, only so many minutes of that hour are going to be um, available for people to think about things, uh, share them. Uh, where game storming came from was, uh, I think, as an artist and a designer, um, I uh, started this company to, uh, you know, based on the idea that visualizing information could help people get further, faster in business and um over time uh i realized that 
it's very rare that one person has the whole picture in their head. Um, you'll find that in a group of people, their collective picture is far more powerful, much more rich, much more complex than um, the individual picture. And getting a group to co-create a shared uh, picture of their collective understanding turned out to be a very powerful thing. And um, <clears throat> when I first started out, I, I would uh, do this by interviewing people and um, having a lot of conversations with a lot of people. And I, as I said, I started out as a journalist doing infographics. So I would be interviewing people and, and uh, actually it's kind of a process that started for me when I was in school where I would try and draw what the teacher was saying and show the picture to the teacher and get the, um, and the picture is always wrong. But what, what was interesting is I, that um, to create a picture that's wrong and put it in front of a teacher, they will, it will get them to pick up a pen and fix the picture. And so um, that was some early insight that I found very useful throughout my life. And um, when I started trying to do this with um, companies and leadership teams um, and, tr and actually started to deconstruct what that process was so that other people could do it. So we could actually, you know, build a real company that had a way of doing this. Uh, it fell on me to kind of try and deconstruct what is this process? What is it that I, what is it that I'm doing kind of intuitively or how do I look over my own shoulder and figure out what does this actually, what's actually going on here. And that's where um, we came to uh, game storming, which is really a way to take um, that collective knowledge, um, give people a framework based on, you know, certain goal that they might be running, wanting to achieve empathy or understanding a customer, um, uh, creating, um, a strategic plan form forming a picture of the uh, shared understanding of culture in the company um, organization whatever uh, some organizational change a new technology whatever it might be um, getting the right people in the room uh, and finding ways to run them through a, a process that would deliver a kind of reliably deliver a, a result for them and so the i mean a lot of the benefits sort of came about kind of accidentally realizing that, oh, we could get there faster. We could get there quicker. Um, we could achieve more. And I think what, what consistently the feedback that um, I would get every time that we would do these kinds of sessions is that um, we got further faster and with less um, unnecessary effort than ever before. And I think part of it is because people are um, in the habit of, you know, I'll make a document, I'll make a presentation, um, doing a lot of individual work, then coming together and finding that that stuff isn't really synchronized and isn't isn't synthesized, it isn't the stuff doesn't really connect, and having them start by putting those things together in a big picture way um, saves them a lot of effort down the road because they get alignment early rather than late. Uh, having to, you know, so um, uh, there is a big benefit to bringing people together at, you know, early and middle and 
um, different stages in a process to get them. Uh, and working with sticky notes is a very quick way to get aligned. You don't have to write a presentation. You don't have to pull a spreadsheet together. You don't have to, all these things that we're typically expected to do in reporting um, and documentation of our work, um, we can do kind of as a starting point instead of doing all that work and then trying to find a ways to weave it together. Yeah. One, one, one thing that people might notice or that, I've noticed seeing <clears throat> uh, some of the visual you use to explain the concept is that your visuals are also very often, um, and the one I, that pops to mind now is uh, one that you did, and we'll post the link in the, in the footer notes uh, to this um, kind of like a hero's journey way of, of hosting a meeting. I think there's, there's this mm -hmm. drawing that you, you, know, you kind of go through the hero's journey. If you're not familiar with it, you know, it's a very kind of stepped approach to going through, let's say, a meeting of an hour. Um, um, in which you, you know, with, with fairly simple <clears throat> visualizations of, you know, concepts, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly low fidelity kind of drawing that you do, which also makes the mind work for its lunch, right? So you need to mm -hmm. interpret beyond, like, um, you need to interpret beyond what the words and the visual that you see in front of you, which I think is very, it triggered me to think about what you're saying in, in, you know, helping people go further faster, um, but also seeing the impact of sometimes when visualizations are being used or it's done by very proficient visualizers um, who tend, who can be very good at what they do in visualizing things, but it also scares other people away to contribute to that very same picture, right? Because mm, yeah. that kind of affinity of people saying, but I can't draw or I have a hard time, you know, articulating my thoughts in a visual way um, yeah and I mean sometimes really interesting things you can discover by accident or by necessity um, for example um, I was we had a, a method of methodology where we would bring in um, a facilitator and an artist and we would get a group of people together and we would have the uh, um, the leadership group or whatever the group was, we would have them verbally describing things that the artist would then be depicting for them. And it was a pretty magical experience to have that, um, to go through that process and, and actually have people see their, their world visualized in front of them. But one day um, the artist was uh, sick or couldn't make it or missed their plane or whatever. And I had to, um, make this work without having that um, extra person there. And I just uh, gave the people paper and had them draw their, their own pictures. And uh, what I discovered was that in many ways, it was far more powerful than um, having the group describe something collectively because we got to see, uh, and I remember very specifically one guy drew, they were, uh, the company did um, building management. So they'll, if you own, a, let's say a big office building, they'll take it over and they'll, for a fee, they'll run it for you. They'll work, they'll do all the leases, the cleaning, the security, and they'll just basically, you know, operate the building on your behalf. And um, one of the, um, one of the, the one of the guys who's a, he was a sales guy 
had drawn a picture and it was a picture of a of, of a building and it, uh the building had a big evil face and a straw and it was sucking money out of the balance sheet and the uh the p and l of the company and the the cfo was screaming or something but um it was a very metaphorical picture but a very powerful one and um i i, I know that we would not have gotten to that picture any other way than having giving him time and space and a pencil and getting him comfortable with the idea that oh i can just make a drawing and um i think that's part of it uh, and i would say 90 percent of um getting people to start sketching in meetings is getting them over their fear and trepidation of not being good enough um we think about you think about the drawings your kids make and you they're great and you love them and you put them up on your refrigerator or in the um you get them framed even sometimes and yet um we're uncomfortable bringing that kind of a drawing and those drawings are very explanatory very clear never um you know usually not in doubt about what's in the picture or what's happening in the picture and so um that yet that is something that we have a lot of trepidation bringing into a uh, business meeting but i think a lot of what happens in a business meeting is um uh, limited to what's proposed or what's accepted, you know, um, as a speaker, uh, I know that if I'm standing in front of a group and I say, okay, everybody stand up, everybody will stand up. It may not be natural, um, may not be what they would do if I wasn't saying anything, but as the leader or facilitator of a, of a meeting, you have a lot of, um, uh, a lot of ways that you can create uh, an environment that's comfortable for all kinds of different things. And, um, you know, there are lots of tips and tricks that I could share, but you know, what it, what it really comes down to is if you know what you want out of a meeting and you know um, what kinds of things um, you have in your toolkit, then you can put those things together and, and, and design the conversation you want for the outcome that you want. What I enjoyed, you know, when I was starting off facilitation is, is by, by having books like GameStorming and other, other examples, it also gives maybe a little bit more confidence to those that haven't done that before, right? Like you said, you need maybe a certain set of skill sets or things that you try on groups because it's true, you know, when people are in groups, um, you have a powerful mechanism at hand, which is behavior change. And people in groups behave differently than people as individuals. And you can play with that. You can work with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a two-edged sword, right? So you need to be very conscious and aware of, you know, uh, your prefrontal cortex you need to be programmed and think about if I do this, then this is the likely outcome with this group. And if that's the order and sequence, then this is probably what they will be doing or what may come out the other end of the pipeline. Um, let, me, let me ask you this question. When you talk to people that let's say, because you, you do a lot of strategy work, you've done a lot of strategy work, um, you involve others in, your, in the way you design, you know, visually, amongst other things. Um, but how do you have the conversation with the person that has the intent of that, uh, of that strategy meeting? Or, you know, there's always an event owner, somebody that says, Dave, I would like to do this, that, and the other, right? Or talks to a team of people. How do you have that conversation? Yeah, well, there. I mean, that you're 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 getting 
um, you're getting to some of the, you know, where the empathy map came from, actually, which is um, uh, with the person who owns the outcome, who's responsible for the outcome, whatever that might be, um, <clears throat> they may have a goal uh, that, you know, um, is abstract or, you know, so the first step is to make that uh, goal concrete in terms of behavior change. And that is by specifically asking um, who are the people that we're talking to, you know, by, by category, by title, by inclination, whatever, who are those people and what do we um, need them to do or what do we expect them to do or what is the goal of the behavior change? If we do this well, um, what will happen differently and who will be doing it. And um, uh, originally that was a separate tool from the empathy map. And uh, in recent years, I've decided to include that into the empathy map as a kind of a, you know, kind of a goal. Why are we doing this? Um, why are we doing this empathy mapping activity? Who is it that we're trying to empathize with? And in, in what context, what are they trying to do or what do we want them to do? And um, then for each of those people, then we would create an empathy map. And um, that happens at the, you know, um, the who do might be kind of um, figured out in advance of the meeting, or it might be actually something that happens at the very beginning of the meeting. And then very quickly moving into, okay, let's do an empathy map for each of these people. It might be three. Um, Sometimes and we did a lot of work in um, technology sales, and uh, sometimes there was a technical uh, approver, decision maker, and there was a business decision maker, and uh, maybe someone else, and um, user, like maybe. Um, and uh, so we then we would create empathy maps, and they would be on the wall, and those would be um, established early on. And then throughout the course of the day or two days or whatever, or four hours or whatever amount of time we took, we could take anything that we had created and would say, and look at that empathy map and say, well, does this person actually care about that? Does this person care about that? Um, as far as the event owner or the decision maker, whatever you want to call them, um, sometimes their schedules were very busy. Um, so uh, one way to... Um, engage that person is to say, well, I'd like you there in the beginning of the meeting to help set the context and make sure people understand the why of why we're there. Um, then uh, if you want, you can leave and let the team work, come back for lunch, um, join the team for lunch and let them kind of talk you through where they've gotten um, and give them guidance about where you think they're on track or not on track. And then, um, you know, make an hour at the end of the day to come back and get the get the download of what was accomplished during the day and um, and give your thoughts on that. So that would be one way uh, of engaging with that event owner. Yeah. And, and them seeing visually the work that has been done in the meantime is also a powerful thing because they mm -hmm. it doesn't go unnoticed. Um, people are recently admitting that they've never watched a recording of any Zoom conference webinar whatever it might be 
um, which rightfully so might clog up anyone's agenda, even if they had a lot of space in it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but taking a glance at a wall, and you know, I can attest to that, uh, Dave, we've worked with CEOs in different organizations, and when they see the work in the empathy maps, and as you, I recall from the, from the interview we did on the first book, um, I think at first it was called the big heads map. Was that it? The big heads? It's like you go When back we first started doing it, that's what we called it. Yeah, the big yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you go back to the big heads and, and you know, test some of your thinking and, uh, you know, would this person actually care about this, which I think is a very, it's an easy booby trap not to do if you forget to do it, but it's a very mm -hmm. powerful tool to actually uh, go back to those people who have a high stake in whatever it is that they do. Yeah. Um, let me shift gears a little bit because one of the other tools that you've developed um, uh, together with Alex Osterwalder and the team at Strategizer and, and, and your teams has been this, um, um, this culture tool or the culture map. Yes. Um, now, Just used it yesterday, in fact. Oh, did you? Great. Yeah. So we have this kind of philosophy, having done a lot of event design, that you know, show me an organization's event and I'll tell you about their culture, right? By immersing yourself okay. into the event of an organization, you can kind of read or decode the culture a little bit. Share some thoughts about how do you, how do you observe culture, or what is the what is the way that you kind of look at this? Um, what is the way that I look at? Um, well, let me first. Uh, tell you the reason for you know why that tool was developed in the first place mm -hmm. which was that um i had been very interested in the business model canvas um watching it progress from an idea in alex's mind to uh, a tool that and watching it become widely adopted as a tool and also recognize and using it myself and recognizing that um for most companies um, for some companies, business model design was a uh, startup kind of activity, but for many companies, it was a how do we change activity or how do we enter new lines of business or how do we, you know, rethink what we're doing mm -hmm. and um, recognizing through doing the work with people and also watching people struggle. Um, as soon as you have a business model a new business model or a business model change, you also have a culture uh, problem because the culture being, if, if you take, if you think of culture as being the way we do things around here, um, the business model is all design is all about rethinking the way that we do things around here and um, culture in a company is all those habits and routines that people have kind of worked into their day and their life and, um, it's a collective um, kind of uh, marching pattern or order of you know business, and uh, asking people to change those things is not trivial, and sometimes they don't, um, they and or won't, and uh, so uh, recognizing that this was a major issue, I I went to Alex and said, hey. Um, I think there needs to be a tool for once you've got your new business model, how do you enable that? Um, how do you, uh, how do you do the people work that comes behind that? And uh, so he was very gracious and uh, helped me, um, you know, kind of brought me into his process and we worked 
very collaboratively on that, uh, developing, testing, iterating, testing, testing, testing. That's one of Alex's things is test and test and test until we got to a, a very simple way to be, to, to think about culture. And that is uh, by thinking about what are the behaviors? What are the things that people do? Um, what are the enablers and blockers of those behaviors? What are the things that are in the, um, uh, in the company or in the group that are enabling or blocking? So why are people behaving that way? And then uh, what, is, what are the outcomes that we get when they behave that way? And then kind of working through those to, okay, what are the things that, so it's like the how, the why, and the what. And um, unlike uh, what Simon Sinek says, start with why in the culture mapping, we start with what, we start with what we can observe, what is actually going on, what are people doing? Um, and then we look at the outcomes. Um, um, oh, sorry, we start with the how. <laughs> how people uh, are doing things. Excuse me, we start with the how. We start with how, how are people doing things today? And then we ask, what, well, what do we get as a result of that? And then we ask why, why are people doing it that way? And um, what we find is that we can identify very specific um, relationships between the problems. So we can actually think of a hierarchy of, of those things. Some things drive other things. Um, and then we can also figure out um, what are the areas where um, some change will um, have the most impact. So it helps us target those interventions. Um, I think of culture like a garden. You don't design or control a culture the way you design and control a car or a piece of machinery. Culture, because it's human, because this involves people, it's very organic. And uh, just like a garden, you you know, if you live in the tropics, you're gonna plant a different kind of garden than you're gonna plant if you live in um, uh, a Nordic zone. So you, you wanna be thinking about um, what it what it is that you can do as a as a gardener of culture to set to create the conditions pull the weeds uh fertilize water the soil what are the things that you can do because the plants are doing the growing and just in the same way in a, in a, a culture it's the people who are doing the changing what you're doing is creating the environment and the conditions for that change so even though we do it last in our um analysis the first area to look at action is in that in those environmental um, enablers and blockers. And those are the things that actually um, create the conditions for ch for change. Excuse me. That's powerful. And <clears throat> knowing that the environment is conducive to certain behaviors or can you know influence uh, the behaviors. We have quite a few environmental changes going on around us every day, right? Um, um, and I think it's a very powerful uh, thing. So looking at, you know, how people behave in the first place and then see seeing these enables blockers and then figuring out the outcomes, which is ultimately the result of the change is what delivers those outcomes. Yeah. Um, th th these are fascinating rabbit holes that 
each might you know would deserve uh, way longer conversations. Um, yeah. Um, this this first on stage part of the conversation. Um, um, uh, thank you, Dave, for for taking us down. Um, you know, deconstructing kind of how you went from you know the journalistic to the and using your artistic and designer skill sets to visualize and allow businesses to go further faster, and then also looking at the culture and the environments around it. Uh, you talked a little about your horizon of change. Um, uh, maybe one question around that, um, knowing that, um, let's say, change over time is when you can take samples of where you're at at a specific moment, right? It's almost mm -hmm. like a culture snapshot. We could consider this a little micro event where you and I in two different sides of the Atlantic Ocean and our auditors, where, where we have no idea where they are. Um, it's three different stakeholders all thinking about this change. Um, could we call on you again a year from today to uh, talk a little bit further about how you look back at this last year, this horizon of change, and consider it one year down the line? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I am making some pivots in my the personal way that I do my work to be more virtual, more remote, to kind of optimize for that uh, kind of environment. And I would love to have a chance to reflect on that in a year. Perfect. Yeah. So well, great. David, it's always a treat. Um, this this concludes the onstage part. I'll you know we'll we'll uh, we'll um, move on to the backstage part so we can um, 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 uh, regroup there in a moment. So uh, hang in with us. If you're looking for the culture tool and uh, the other elements, you know the hero's journey, visual, etc. We're going to put some of these links down in the footer notes um, so you can actually see these uh, elements because they're made available uh, very generously by uh, Dave Gray. So um, we'll see you backstage in a moment, Dave. Okay, thanks for having me. This has been another episode of the Design to Change Designer Conversation Series. Explore these conversations and additional content at designtochange.online. Want more right now? Tune into the backstage episode of this conversation and hear what the experts discuss offstage.